And let's ask the Lord for a blessing upon the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Merciful God and Heavenly Father, before your throne of grace, we bow once more to ask that you would bless now not only the reading of this word, but its proclamation, that what is said would be faithful to your word, a revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ, comforting to all who believe, challenging to all who doubt, and calling all men to put their trust in Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Then turn with me to page 285 in your pew Bibles, 285, which is where you find 1 Samuel 18. We continue to study the ministry of David, also in light of the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, in his incarnation. Through the Advent season, we began with the anointing of David as king. Most recently saw his defeat of Goliath, and now in chapter 18, we see how the response to his revelation is made. 1 Samuel 18, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of God. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul... The soul, rather, of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And, or set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they, depart, or as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? 
But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And she told Saul, or and they told rather Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall, be my, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, one of the Christmas hymns that we don't have in our Trinity Psalter hymnal is Away in the Manger. We are, of course, familiar with that hymn. And in that hymn, we are made to sing, the cattle are lowing, the poor baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I suppose the intent there is to imply for us that Jesus is a different kind of child, that he is not like babies born in sin, babies born under the judgment of sin. Here is a perfect child. Here is a child that every mother would love, for he rebels in no way. He causes no grief. He is no trouble at all. He's the perfect child. And maybe there was, in fact, a truth to that. Maybe there was something of that in, in Jesus' development and growth as a child and as a young boy. But to suggest that Jesus didn't cry, that seems too much, given, given what it is that he came to do, given why it is that he came. I suppose if we were to paint the picture of Jesus' coming in certain terms, then yes, his, the absence of his crying would make sense. That is... If we were to think of Jesus merely as an example to us, as a tender story intended to inspire us, if we were to think of Jesus and the coming of Jesus, if we were to think of the incarnation of the entire Christmas story as meant to be nothing more than just just a heartwarming event, 
If that's what we think Christmas is, a heartwarming event, the way that our world does, the way that its songs speak of Christmas, speak of Christmas as this emotional, this family, this love moment where everybody has and gets what they need and wants, where families are together, friends are together, where there is no war, there is no pain, there is no sorrow. If we can just paint over the problems of life and think that Christmas is this tender moment then a crying baby would pierce that expectation that picture that story but we need to remember that it is not to paper over the problems of life it is not to deal with superficially the issues of life that Jesus came it is rather to deal with the very brokenness the very pain the very depth of the darkest darkness that is in this life it is for the very problem of our sin that Jesus came that he was made sin for us that he might drink the deep cup of God's wrath that he might shoulder the eternal weight of God's burden and you remember how our catechism reminds us that Jesus' suffering was not only on the cross but also earlier throughout his life he suffered the weight of God's wrath Indeed, as he was born, he was born into that weight. He was born into that grief. He was born into that sorrow. And that's not something we like to deal with. That's not something we like to talk about. That's not something we like to focus on at Christmas time. We don't want to deal with darkness. We like to talk about the light. But then we go out into this world. We go out into the reality of this life, whether it is After the days of Christmas are past, the tree is packed up and put back in its place or put out by the road, the gifts have all been unwrapped, the papers in the recycling, and life goes back to normal, and then what? That superficial papering over the problems of life didn't really work, and we're still facing the brokenness of this life, and we're still dealing with the stresses and the strains of our finances, of our relationships, of all of our circumstances in life. Reality has a tendency to come and rest upon our shoulders again and what then if all we've ever done is papered over the problems what then now we have a better way a more excellent way a way that is revealed to us also in first samuel 18 when we see jesus revealed to us in the person of david david who is responded to having been revealed as the lord's anointed you might say not officially that is the The people don't know that he has been anointed by Samuel to be king, but Saul's got a pretty good idea by the end of this story that David's going to be the one who replaces him. And Jonathan, Jonathan knows immediately. Jonathan immediately acknowledges David as king. That's how the story starts. We're told that as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, saying, I'm the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite, Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And in these words, we are given a beautiful picture of what it means to respond to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That here is exactly how each of us, even today, ought to respond 
to the glorious goodness of our God in His Son. And as we celebrate Christmas, as we think about the birth of Jesus Christ, if you want to know how should I answer this great grace of our God, here is the answer. Jonathan sets for us the standard, motivated by love. Repeatedly we're told that he loves David. Love that is a commitment, a devotion to, not first of all, some kind of emotional connection with. We shouldn't pour modern perspectives of love on this word concerning Jonathan. But we ought to think of it more covenantally, more in the context of Scripture. Jonathan acknowledged and devotes himself to David saying, This is the one whom I will serve with all of my being and with all that I have. Indeed, Jonathan surrenders everything to him. You shouldn't miss that. He gives him his cloak, his sword, his belt, his bow. Remember that sword. Remember what that sword did. Remember what it did in the hands of Jonathan and his servant as they went up that cliff that one time when there was only two swords in all of Israel. This is one of the great swords of God's people, a storied and historical weapon that he now willingly surrenders. I will no longer wield it. Let you be the one who holds it, David. You may have the second sword of Israel. Notice that, that that Jonathan, by giving him his cloak, by giving him his weapons, by giving David those things that made Jonathan distinctive, that made Jonathan marked as the prince of Israel, as the second in line for the throne, as the crown prince after Saul, the things that marked Jonathan as the next king of Israel, he gives to David and says, you, you are the next king of Israel. That's how we need to see what Jonathan does here. It needs to stun us. It needs to amaze us. It needs to challenge us in our response to Jesus Christ. For we must respond in the same way. Sometimes in the modern context, this story of Jonathan's love for David gets perverted and twisted around and turned into something it's not at all which is not supported at all by the text, by the language of the text, and would hardly make David a man of God if he lived in such unrepentant rebellion before God and against God's commands. No, this is not told us in order to slip in some perversion of modern sin into our lives. It is rather held up for us as an example. This is what it means to answer the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. This is the right response. As we will see, it's contrasted with the unease and the increasing paranoia of King Saul. We'll see the wrong response in a moment. Remember that not only does Saul know that he's been rejected by the Lord, he knows that there's someone else coming to take his place. As Samuel said to him in chapter 15, verse 28, a neighbor, somebody close to him. And this evil spirit plagues Saul. And and soon enough, Saul keeps an eye on David. Soon enough, Saul wants to kill David. Soon enough, Saul knows that David's the one. 
But before we ever look at the dark side, before we look at the consequence of this coming of the Savior to God's people, at the natural and sinful response of our hearts to the gospel message, let us for a moment enjoy the light that shines in the opening verses of our text and marvel at this response of Jonathan and its total surrender to the chosen King of Israel. Here is the right response to a God who sends His Son into this dark world to save His people. Here is the response that should come from a people who know the love of this God, a love that ought to be answered with love. Let's not miss that, that the right response of the believer to God is love, devotion, commitment, surrender. All of those words are part of that package. That's the right response of the Christian to God in Jesus Christ because what God has revealed is love. God has sent His Son as He sent David to deliver His people, to protect and preserve them, to lift them from the oppression of the enemy, to defeat the darkness and to destroy that who, those who oppose. God has come to show love to His people, to you and to me. What response then must we give to so great a loving God and Father except love in response? A love that lets go of everything we hold dear. A love that clings only to what God has given us as precious and valuable. A love that says, this is the good that I find in this world. This is all I need. This God and His love. The response that Jonathan gives to David is the response that the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians 3 in verses 7 and 8 when he writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the response that the Lord desires of us, His people. That is the way that the Christmas message ought to echo within our hearts. And that's no easy thing to do, people of God. That is no easy response to offer in our day and in our circumstance of life. There are so many distractions in our lives that press us hard and demand our attention an attention that can easily be turned away from the precious and the valuable, from the good and the eternal, to the temporal and the insignificant, to the superficial and the silly. Even as there are times in our hearts and in our lives when we doubt and when we fear, when we go through various trials and sorrows and griefs and wonder if the Lord is even with us, even even if the Lord is love, is He a God of grace and mercy or not? Indeed, when the world whispers into our ears that God is cruel, we can think that God is unkind. And that we're just trying to have to keep, or we, all we need to do is to try and keep our nose clean so that we don't get into too much trouble. Christianity can become this burdensome religion where instead of being joyful and amazed at what God has done for us, we just have to try and survive. Our natural hearts will do anything that they can to keep us from resting in this saving grace. But Jonathan loves David. Jonathan loves David. And whatever the motive of anyone who responds to David, 
And we see that the army values him. We see that the people rejoice in him. We see that Michael loves him. But this we know, that Jonathan was willing to surrender all. Jonathan was willing to give up his place and his priority, his position and his prestige. Jonathan was willing to say, I will follow you, O King David, wherever you lead. Jonathan, who was like David in so many ways, passionate about the Lord's kingdom and profoundly confident in the Lord's faithfulness, who was like David, who stood before Goliath and said, because you have defied the name of the Lord, you will die. So to Jonathan confess that faith before the face of his enemies. Knowing the pain of the Philistine oppression, knowing the plan of God for his kingdom, Jonathan rejoiced to see the Lord's anointed arrive on the scene and now says, I will fight with you. I will serve in your kingdom. I will surrender all for you. That's what moves his heart to love David. He knows who David is and the enormous goodness and grace of God sent to this shepherd and to his people in order to save his nation. And so let us join in David or with Jonathan in expressing our amazement and wonder and being grateful with a surrendering love to the Lord. Let us respond to the gospel today. See the greatness of the Son of God before you, what He's come to do, how He's come to slay your sin, to overcome your guilt, to defeat even your death, and surrender all to Him. Rejoice to know Him today. Renew your life's devotion to Him today, for here is the hope of all the earth. But never be surprised. Never be surprised. As you give your life to the Lord, as you give your life in gratitude to God today, never be surprised that there are those who hate Jesus. The text now quickly shifts from the very positive to the increasingly and progressively negative and dark. It starts okay. David is given responsibilities by Saul to go out and And indeed, David goes out, and as he comes in, the women sing of Saul's thousands and David's tens of thousands, such that we're told David, or Saul rather, becomes very angry. And now Saul eyes David. He keeps an eye on David. He's he's aware of him. He sees him as a threat, a threat that is so severe it must be snuffed out entirely. When that evil spirit comes upon Saul, he hurls his spear at David, trying to pin him against the wall. Indeed, though Saul hated David, David's successes brought acknowledgement from all Israel. Saul hears the women singing and is very angry. And he raves under the dominion of that false spirit. Indeed, there's this lovely play on words in the text where it says that David had in his hand the lyre, the harp, and Saul had in his hand the spear. David with his hand seeks to soothe Saul. Saul with his hand seeks to kill David. You might wonder why David was willing to stick around. Twice he was almost killed. But of course Saul was raving. Saul was mad. There was something untoward about the way he was acting. Everybody could see that Saul wasn't in his right mind. That's why they had gotten David to play the harp for Saul because everyone knew that there was something wrong with the king. And when he threw his spear, David undoubtedly said to himself, well, he didn't do it on purpose. He did it in his madness. 
And when he couldn't kill David, Saul then puts him in a position to die. He makes him a captain of a thousand. Sounds like a promotion from having to play the liar to soothe the king to now being the captain of a thousand. That was a a significant promotion for this young man. Except Saul hopes that by having to go out to battle daily in the head position of the thousand, David would find himself very quickly killed. Saul isn't trying to promote David. Saul is trying to have David destroyed. And what we need to note in all of this story is the increasing enmity. How jealousy gives way to rage. How quiet plotting turns to assaults on David's life. How Saul in the end realizes that David must die. And notice as well that there is nothing David could do to stop this. Indeed, he's doing everything right. He's serving his king. He's trying to soothe his king's ill temper. He's fighting for the king faithfully. He's destroying the king's enemies. David's not running away. David is humble and obedient. David is doing everything that his king desires. Whatever else Saul might think, David, it was not David rather that he hated. It was the fact that David was the Lord's anointed. It was the fact that David was the Lord's chosen. It was, a, it was the fact that David was the coming Messiah. And therefore, Saul knew David was a threat to him. Therefore, Saul knew David was his judgment. Don't misunderstand that. David has come to defeat the darkness. David has come to defeat that which rebels against the Lord. David has come to fight the Lord's enemies. And Saul is the Lord's enemy. Rejected by the Lord, played with an evil spirit, Saul stands now as an opponent before David. Though blessed by David, And though all the nation could see the truth of who David was, Saul's irrational enmity persistently grows. And that should not miss us. We should not fail to note that in our study of this passage. Because it may seem strange to us at first, how can anyone ever be angry or reject Jesus? How can Christmas be anything but The best news story ever. Jesus comes from the Father to redeem freely his people, to defeat his enemies without any input from his people. He lifts us from our despair and darkness by his power. He leaves nothing for us to do. It's all of grace, goodness, and love. How could anyone be bothered by this story of a baby born in the manger in order to deliver a people from death, from sin, from guilt, from shame? Who would resist so great a glorious good news? Yet even from the very beginning, as we've already heard in the words of Simeon, as we have sung from Simeon's words, there was a note of darkness. Behold, this child is appointed, said Simeon, for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Oh, it would be opposed. Jesus would be opposed. 
His gospel would be opposed. There is no neutrality, you see, with Jesus. There is no neutrality when the revelation of Jesus comes into this world. When you see Jesus, when he is made known to you, he forces you to make a choice. Were Jesus merely a friend? Were Jesus merely an advisor or a counselor giving us wisdom? It wouldn't be so severe. Because then you could just take his advice. You could listen to him or not. You could accept or reject his counsel. You could go with him or go your own way. It wouldn't matter. Indeed, that's how many people relate to the Lord. That's how they see Jesus as a counselor, as a bit of a guru, as a wise teacher or friend. He gives them good advice to navigate the challenges of life. But that's not how Jesus reveals himself to us on the pages of Scripture. That's not how Jesus comes to us. He comes to us as the great king. He comes to us as the sovereign ruler. He comes to us as the Lord of lords. He comes to us as the great victor. He comes to us as the one who defeats all his enemies and restores to his father the kingdom of his might. He comes to us as the one who is light in darkness. And now you must either embrace that light or reject Him. You must either walk in His light or you must close your eyes and live in the darkness. You must either embrace Him and surrender all as Jonathan did or you must reject Him and rail against Him. Those are the only options when it comes to Jesus. There is no neutrality. Either you say, yes, Lord, or you say, no, no way, this is impossible, I refuse. It's not surprising, therefore, that people with much to lose are disinclined to follow Jesus. For Saul to embrace David would mean effectively surrendering his throne to David, acknowledging his failure, accepting his judgment, admitting his sin. And if we have seen anything about Saul, it is that he's unwilling to do that. When confronted with his own failures, he doesn't cry out to God for mercy. He doubles down on his own rebellion. He says, I'm not wrong. I haven't failed. I'm not responsible. He refuses to surrender his sin before God. And that remains the way today, isn't it? For today, those who are called to rejoice in the Son of David means that they will have to give up their positions of power. You think of what it would mean for those in our positions of power today to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Think of what they would lose. Think of what they'd have to give up. Think of the lies that they would have to repent of. Think of the deceit and the deception that they would have to cry out for mercy for. Can you imagine the people in power who've built their lives upon this dishonesty and despicable destructiveness? Can you see them surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ? giving up their lives as professors in universities, teaching students that which is dishonest and despicable, give up their comfortable and cultivated lifestyle in their wealth and in their their, uh, abuse of, of, of the material means that the Lord has provided. Can you see our world surrendering to Jesus Christ? We don't even need to look that far, do we? We don't need to look down our noses at anybody or call out anyone else's rebellion against Jesus Christ. We just need to look in the mirror. 
We think there are others in this world. They can't possibly come to salvation. But what of us? Are we willing today to surrender our financial security? Are we willing today to surrender our family successes? Are we willing today to surrender our future stability? Are you willing to give your life today to Jesus Christ? To forgive those who have mistreated you? To be supportive in a gracious way of those who are in need? To surrender your pride when you are spoken ill of? To work hard, not for the praise of men, but for the glory of God. There are countless moments today and in this coming week where the claim of Christ will be placed upon your heart and where you will know something of Saul's anger. Why, you'll say, why? Why do I have to sacrifice while others float through life without a care in the world? Why do I have to go through such trials? Why do I have to suffer so? Why do I have to give up so much? Let us never be astonished at the opposition that arises in our world to the gospel. Whether in the halls of power where Christianity is reviled and viewed as a great threat, whether in the halls of study where Christianity is treated as a backwards mythology for people with weak minds, whether in our own homes and in our own hearts where the will of God can find stiff resistance, let us note and acknowledge that rebellion and resistance to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is our natural condition. A natural condition that repeats itself so often in this world. Here comes David, the blessed, anointed Savior of his people, a people he serves faithfully, a Lord that he serves winsomely, the anointed of God being used to protect and preserve for himself a people. After decades of oppression and suffering at the hands of the uncircumcised, David is doing a great work. But it is a work unto the Lord is a work in obedience and in sacrifice to the Lord. And it's precisely because it's faithfulness to the Lord that David's success brings. It is precisely for that reason that he is a threat to all who hold their sin and their rebellion close. Saul, the tottering king, rejects the Lord because he doesn't want to surrender his sin, doesn't want to surrender his position, doesn't want to surrender his power, doesn't want to surrender his circumstance of life. He must either acknowledge God's chosen and surrender all before him, losing his power, his dynasty, his wealth, or he must reject the Lord's anointed and cling to his empty symbols of power. And here is the story of our world. Whenever the culture is confronted by the gospel, Those who have everything to lose reject the king. Yet those who are willing to lose everything rejoice in him. The text ends with the story of David's marriage to Michael. David may not yet understand the danger that he's in. Saul is still somewhat surreptitious. He's quiet, sneaky. Says to his guys, tell him that I'd like him to be my son-in-law. And Saul offers Mirab to begin. Doesn't work out. So David is very humble. David is very uh, unwilling to take such a privileged position to himself. He doesn't push for the position of son-in-law to the throne. He says, I'm unworthy. 
And so Merib goes off to Adriel, the Maholothite. But then Michael, we're told, loves David. It's a simple thing to say. Michael loved David. It is the only place in all of the Bible that you read that. That you read a woman loved a man. Strange to, 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 you probably don't believe it now that you hear it, but it's true. The only place in all the Bible where a woman is said to love a man is there. Michael loved David. And Saul's thrilled because he thinks, I can trap David now. I can snare him. It's an interesting thought. How, how would Michael's love for David snare David? Is it possible that Saul knew that Michael was an idolater? She does worship idol gods, as we'll see, and maybe he thought that she would bring the idolatry into David's life and that David would no longer be devoted to the Lord and that he would worship the idol gods. Maybe that's what Saul thought. Or maybe he just thought, David will want to win the heart of my daughter and I can set for him a task that will kill him. For that's what he does. He says, go collect a hundred Philistine foreskins which, of course, David jumps at the opportunity to do and doubles the required bride price so that Saul's plan backfires. And he ends up more afraid than David than, for, of David than ever. David ends up being his son-in-law. David now has a legitimate claim to the throne. He is related to the king. If Jonathan should die, if some of the other sons should die, then David could legitimately say, I get to be king. Saul's plan has only made David more likely to be king, not less likely. And so the plan of God advances and the purpose of God is achieved. Therein lies the great irony, isn't it? That despite the rebellion of Saul, despite the rejection of Saul against David, God's plan persists. And it persists in so beautiful and wonderful a way. That's particularly seen in that business of the circumcision, which itself, of course, is a little bit disturbing, a little bit dark, not only because we don't like to think about such things and the thought of having to kill 100 or 200 men in order to accomplish this task. Someone had to come along and gather those foreskins and then they had to present them to Saul and it seems a little bit disturbing and disgusting and we know that there was 200 there so somebody counted them even more weird. But take away for a moment that aspect of it and take instead the covenantal dynamic of circumcision which we know was given by God to Abram for the purpose of marking Israel as belonging to the Lord. And think about how Saul uses that mark of God's faithfulness in so superficial and simple a way. He makes it something that David has to prove his worth with rather than a precious mark of God's faithfulness to God or to, to his people. Saul mistreats the sacrament of circumcision and treats it like a careless thing. But notice that when David then fulfills the calling of Saul and he gets the bride price of 200 foreskins of the Philistines, what does David do but remove from the land these uncircumcised heathens. Remember how David talked about that with Goliath, how wicked it was that there was an uncircumcised enemy upon the earth in, in the kingdom of God, within the garden of God's delight. In this land there were these people that didn't belong to the Lord. They were rebels in the house of God. They were enemies living very, right in the, in the very living room of God's people. 
David was bothered by that. David was was stirred to anger, righteous indignation. God's name would not be profaned by these uncircumcised hordes. They would be brought under the dominion of God in Jesus Christ. So that by defeating these 200 Philistines and circumcising them, David, you might say, inadvertently but still nonetheless, removes the reproach of the Philistines from the land, or at least 200 of them from the land. David purifies, you might say, the kingdom of God. David delivers the land from its stain of reproach. David accomplishes God's purpose for Israel, advancing the kingdom of God, advancing the plan of redemption, advancing the calling of God in this life where all men are to be brought under submission to Jesus Christ, such that Saul's plan very much backfires. And the hatred that he has for David is used by the Lord to bring about a better thing. Indeed, here is the impotence, isn't it, of rejecting the Lord displayed. Here is Psalm 2, In living colors where the nations of the world seek to overthrow the chains of the king. But the Lord who is in heaven laughs. He says, I have appointed my Messiah. I have installed him on my holy hill. And David accomplishes the Lord's plan and purpose for salvation. A reminder that though Saul believed he was rebelling against David, rejecting but a mere shepherd boy, hating but a mere rival to his throne, he was in fact doing war with God and losing. So it is and ought to be understood by all men today who reject Jesus Christ, whether in this service or outside of this service, whether in this place right now or outside of this place right now, whenever people reject the call of faith in Jesus Christ, they do not reject a mere man but the very living God, and they do not escape His claim but suffer under His iron scepter. Jesus Christ is victorious. Though Peter denied him three times, though Judas Iscariot betrayed him, yet through their very cruelty, Jesus Christ brought salvation, defeated the enemy, and brought life to light. Hating God, hating Jesus Christ, rebelling against His claim does not bring victory, it just assures defeat. And yet here is the very comfort of the church. For as the nations rage, we can become fearful. And from a certain perspective, David's life seems to be the most precarious, hanging on a very thread above the fires of hell. David is hated by the most powerful man in Israel. David is hated by the man who can kill him without without consequence. Saul can merely pin him to the wall and who's going to stop him? David's life surely hangs in the balance. But for all of the raging of Saul, David rests in the faithfulness of the Lord who protects and preserves him and uses him to advance his kingdom and his cause. For the Lord's plan will not be thwarted. The plan of salvation will not be overcome. The darkness will never win. The light will always shine. The Savior is born on Christmas morning.
the enemy is defeated, the kingdom is coming, salvation is ours. Though the clouds may gather, the victory is always the Lord's. And this is the comfort we enjoy as God's people who claim Jesus Christ today. As we surrender our lives and renew our commitment to Jesus and be on this, in this Christmas season, celebrate the birth of this Messiah, we do so in this certainty that the Lord's King reigns and that all the opposition will be defeated and the stain of the enemy will be removed from the kingdom of God And there is coming a day when upon this earth will stand the King and we will rejoice. And all who have opposed Him, all who rebel against Him will be defeated. For this is the plan of God and this is the joy of the Lord and this is the blessing of His people. This is the wonder of salvation. It is a difficult story. A story of suffering. A story of darkness. A story of pain. It is a story of victory. It is a story of deliverance. It is a story of the resurrection and of the ascension. It is the story of Christ's reign and rule. This is the story of which we sing and of which we praise our God at this Christmas time. And so let us come before him in prayer and thank him for this grace and this goodness. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your deliverance and your grace in Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord, as we celebrate you at this Christmas season. Help us to surrender our lives like Jonathan, giving all to him and holding nothing back. Help us to see, Lord, that there lives in us a bit of Saul. And help us to flee to you for help and strength so that we might not rage as the enemy rages against you. And help us do so, Lord, confident that the victory is yours in Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.